everybody. Welcome to Equals. This is Max and Happy New Year. Welcome to Equals, everyone. This is Naf Gote, wishing you a Happy New Year. So Naf, uh, how are you feeling about January 2024? As an Ethiopian, you know, New Year's actually starts for us in September. Uh, but um, 2024, it's, it's weighing on me the multiple crises that we're experiencing around the world, Max. But that said, I'm also feeling really hopeful, especially, you know, as an African, it is inspiring to see South Africa taking a stand on what is happening in Gaza. So, yes, I have mixed feelings about 2024, but more on the positive side. I I agree with you about South Africa. I mean, to see the, the evidence given in the, in the International Court of Justice, the, the bravery of South Africa and all the other countries that have lined up behind them, and on the march on Saturday in London to see the South African flags flying with the Palestinian flags, it was inspiring. And I really hope it is a huge contribution to the fight for peace in Gaza and the ceasefire we desperately need. Definitely. We need to continue the fight for justice, Max. Uh, January is also, as always, a critical moment in the fight against inequality. Uh, this is the week of Davos. We launched our report on inequality. Yeah, we launched our um, annual inequality report. Um, this one's called uh, Inequality Incorporated. Uh, and it's um, got some fantastic facts and figures in. And the focus is this year predominantly on corporate power and the link between monopolies, corporate power and billionaires. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great read, isn't it? Definitely. I have to say, Max, I found the findings um, of this year's report really shocking. Um, I know we produce reports every year, um, you know, to show growing inequality. But going through the latest report, I just found it disturbing that we are living in a world that is brutal for many. So I want to highlight, you know, two stats uh, from the report. Since 2020 and the beginning of this decade of division, the five richest men in the world have seen their fortunes more than double, while almost 5 billion people have seen their wealth fall. But what I found even more interesting is this, Max. If each of the five wealthiest men were to spend a million US dollars daily, they would take 476 years to exhaust their combined wealth. We're talking about extreme inequality. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it's always quite hard to get across the scale of the amount of money these men have. And I think everyone can imagine trying to spend a million dollars in a day um, and then doing that every day for over 400 years and you still haven't run out of money. I mean, it, it does it does uh, bend the mind. Um, I My favourite fact this year was um, making the link between billionaires and corporate power, which... Um, we haven't done before. So we looked at the 10 biggest corporations in the world and we discovered that uh, seven out of the 10 biggest either have a billionaire as the largest shareholder or they have a billionaire as the chief executive officer running running the corporate. So it's the main argument of the paper is that the, the super rich and billionaires are not just the passive beneficiaries of an economy that happens to work for them, but they are actively involved in controlling the most powerful corporations in the world and through that, controlling the shape and direction of our economy. So turning these corporations into inequality machines. So that I thought was really, really, really interesting and really worth worth a read. 
And today's podcast will delve into uh, some of these issues, including corporate power, you know, monopolies and so on, uh, as part of our Davos work. Our guest today is Hajun Chang, a world-famous economist that has influenced many. My favorite book of his, Max, is Bad Samaritans. Yeah, it's an amazing book. I, I, but it's hard to choose, isn't it? Because he's written so many fantastic books, unpacking economics for everybody. And such a privilege to be able to interview him uh, in this Davos week. So uh, should we get to the interview? I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Let's delve into it. It's great having you with us, Hajun. Your brilliant books are all about helping ordinary people ask the right questions about economics. What is the most important question people should be asking today? Thank you, Max and Naf, for having me on your show. Yeah, I would uh, say the most uh, important question that we need to ask is why should the market decide what is valuable in our society? Of course, uh, we need the market, you know, the, a complex economy cannot function without uh, a well-functioning market. But the trouble with the current uh, arrangement is that uh, basically market uh, gets to decide what is valuable and what is not. And most importantly is that uh, one dollar, one vote, not one person, one vote. So the, if uh, there's uh, demand uh, for something uh, backed up by the purchasing power, it will be supplied however silly it might be. If there's no purchasing power backing up that demand, it will not be provided. So yeah, we've uh, seen this uh, very, very clearly during the pandemic. You know, at the time, lots of people are not uh, getting uh, the health equipment and uh, vaccines and basic supplies uh, because uh, they didn't have enough money to uh, call upon those things in the market, while the tech billionaires were having their own private space raised, you know. One of the things we've seen since 2020 is a big, big increase in inequality around the world, something we've highlighted uh, this week in our Davos report. What do you think is causing that acceleration? Inequality has been increasing, not everywhere, but uh, the, in almost all places since uh, the 1980s because of uh, policies introduced to liberate the market uh, from the constraints of government regulation and uh, social restrictions. This is uh, commonly known as uh, neoliberal uh, reforms, and it involved uh, things like deregulation uh, in all sorts of areas, in the finance, in labor market, in consumer protection, in environment, uh, and uh, also involved uh, privatization. Many countries uh, before the 80s had uh, uh, nationalized uh, the enterprises supplying essential goods and services, public transport, uh, healthcare, the water, energy. And uh, in many countries, these were privatized. And then, of course, uh, that is also involved the uh, opening of borders. Uh, so especially financial markets were open and uh, countries became subject to the, the disciplines of uh, the financial market, which uh, Sometimes it's a good thing, but uh, very often uh, leads uh, countries to uh, give uh, more and more power to the corporations and uh, the rich people. Yeah? 
this thing had been building up, you know, the three, four decades, depending on the exact country of neoliberal policies leading to increased uh, power of uh, corporations and uh, rich people, not just in economics, but in the politics, the spread of uh, this uh, market-oriented individualistic culture that uh, almost uh, glorifies uh, inequality and so on. And on that uh, fertile ground, the seeds of uh, even further acceleration of uh, inequality uh, since the 2020 had been sown by this uh, kind of big disruptive events like the pandemic, various wars. So it was a combination of these two factors that led to this uh, sudden upsurge in inequality. So do you think corporates are kind of terminally kind of incorrigible that we can never stop them rewarding their rich shareholders first? Or, or do you think it is possible if we look at history, particularly of some nations, to actually make corporates work for the benefit of the majority and not just wealthy shareholders? Or is that just a dream? Existence of corporations is actually a good thing because, uh, you know, before you had these uh, corporations with uh, limited liability, running business was very risky because if you fail, they take away everything, not just uh, your money and house, uh, but you still cannot repay, they put you in. I think it is wrong to denounce a corporation itself because uh, despite all these uh, problems, uh, it's a very powerful, important institution, but uh, these have to be properly regulated. Uh, We have traffic rules and car safety regulations Exactly because that the cars have become powerful, yeah? you know, when they were all running at 20 miles at the beginning or when didn't even have cars and uh, rode on horsebacks and ox cars, no country had traffic lights, you know. So exactly because these uh, corporations have become uh, powerful, we need to regulate them properly yeah? with combination of uh, formal regulation, you know, countervailing uh, power sources uh, like uh, uh, trade unions. You know, democratic pressures and cultural changes, you can actually make uh, these corporations uh, behave in very different ways. So much of the issues and solutions that we're discussing today, including the examples you mentioned, Hajun, are connected with regulation and the role of the state. And currently there are interesting trends, yeah? If you look at countries from the US to Indonesia, it feels like state intervention and industrial policy is back invoke. Can we feel excited about by this development? Uh, well, first of all, we have to recognize that, you know, state has always uh, played an active role and industrial policy has always been there. Of course, uh, during the neoliberal period, role of the state has uh, shrunk, uh, uh, although not completely disappeared uh, in many countries, and industrial policy was uh, considered a taboo, but you know, when they needed, many countries actually practiced uh, industrial policy, except under another name. In the 19th century, the U.S. was uh, the most uh, protectionist country in the world, and then the, after the Second World War, toned down its uh, protectionism and declared that it's uh, the defender of the free enterprise system. But even during that period, it uh, had huge industrial policy, 
except that it wasn't uh, called industrial policy, it was called defense policy. So they poured in huge amount of funding in developing uh, new technologies with uh, potential military use. And yeah, without those uh, spending by the US uh, government, we would not have uh, the current information economy because just about everything that is uh, the foundation of this uh, information economy was uh, at least initially and uh, very often well into its uh, development financed uh, by the US government. So there had been a lot of industrial policies uh, even before the current phase and even in the developing countries, many of which uh, gave up on industrial policy in the 80s and 90s under pressure from the World Bank uh, and the IMF uh, under the so-called uh, Structural Adjustment Program, they got disillusioned by this uh, neoliberal recipe. And many of them uh, started uh, slowly using uh, industrial policy again since the 2010s. It's not as if uh, we are suddenly having involvement of the government uh, in the economy, we are suddenly having uh, industrial policy, it's only that uh, we, we have become far more open about it yeah, in the recent uh, period. I can think of a few reasons. Uh, one is that the rich countries, especially the US, they are scared by the rise of China yeah, and they want to uh, push China back and pull ahead again, so they even pretend that they are not doing industrial policy. Also, uh, many countries have realized the weaknesses in their economy, especially in the manufacturing sector through pandemic and war and the recent uh, inflationary pressures. We are facing uh, the climate crisis and have realized that, you know, if you just uh, left it to the market, we are never going to fix this problem. So there were these uh, reasons uh, for being more open and being more forceful about the uh, industrial policy and I think it's uh, in general a positive thing because you know if you are going to do industrial policy anyway, why not have it in a more kind of uh, open, transparent and properly kind of regulated way? I mean, being open about it, being uh, more transparent about it, I think it uh, allows you to do industrial policy in a more coherent and more effective manner, and also makes it uh, more subject to democratic scrutiny. Unfortunately, at the moment, uh, there's uh, quite a lot of uh, what may be called uh, kicking away the green ladder or green ladder kicking in relation to the climate-related industrial policies, because uh, at the excuse of the fighting uh, climate change, the rich countries are introducing all kinds of measures that are actually illegal in the WTO to uh, push up for these uh, policies that will actually hurt the chances of uh, developing countries to develop those uh, technologies and industries. Uh, so any tool can be abused and uh, industrial policy is the same. But it's a positive thing that uh, we are doing it uh, more openly, but you need to also think about this uh, negative uh, aspect and the possibilities of abuse. So, I mean, how do we ensure that this kind of new, more open industrial policy reduces inequality and doesn't increase it then? Is it, I mean, it's not guaranteed, is it, that a more activist state will lead lead to a fairer world, will it? You know, I think the most important thing about industrial policies is that uh, if you do it properly, it is uh, geared towards uh, creating 
uh, economic activities and therefore jobs that are based on higher levels of knowledge and skills and more economically sustainable and with higher wages. And if you do that, actually, it's a much more secure way of uh, ensuring stable livelihoods uh, for the because that uh, you know some countries have managed to reduce uh, inequality through social transfer programs in the recent period i'm um, thinking about uh, countries like uh, brazil and uh, a few others in latin america but you know these uh, the reduction in inequality on the basis of uh, social transfer programs are quite uh, precarious you know because uh, as we have actually seen in brazil uh, with the uh, bolsonaro government a wrong government comes in you can wipe out the livelihoods of many people on the basis of a few strokes of a pen, so to speak. So if you have a good industrial policy that creates stable and well-paying jobs, even you know, a crazy government like Bolsonaro's government is not going to be saying, I don't know, close down these factories because I don't want poor people getting higher wages. So I think that if you do industrial policy to create uh, more stable and better paid jobs. Uh, it's a very robust uh, way of uh, providing uh, stable and the uh, higher uh, standard of uh, living uh, to more people. So that uh, should contribute uh, to the reduction in equality. Hajun, um, as someone from Ethiopia, I'm really interested in the topic of developmental state. I'm actually a strong supporter and believe it's the way for developing, especially for low-income countries. And we have seen what it has done for Korea, yeah? The country has seen incredible progress. Uh, currently, there's a huge um, new interest in developmental states by activists and academics around the world. As someone who has studied this issue so closely over the years, what advice do you have for those who want to fight for a new generation of developmental states? Yeah, no, thank you. That's uh, such an important question. Development is, you know, so important uh, for human well-being. You know, by development, I just don't mean kind of uh, simple expansion in your GDP, but uh, expansion and upgrading of uh, your economy based on the greater use of uh, knowledge, uh, greater use of skills, and uh, better organization. So it uh, implies a qualitative change. And yeah, especially when you are, you know, the, the low level of income, you know, development is so important. You know, I've seen it with my own eyes, you know, when I was uh, born in South Korea in the early 60s, I mean, the life expectancy uh, was only uh, 53 years. You know? I should be dead by the uh, statistics because I'm uh, 60. You know? I think uh, what uh, happened in countries like Korea, Japan, Taiwan, is uh, a testimony to the importance of uh, development. And as we all know now, although until the 90s, uh, neoliberal economists uh, denied that there was uh, much uh, state intervention in East Asia, because for them, countries with uh, state intervention, uh, by definition, do not succeed. And we now know that uh, these countries had this uh, powerful uh, state that intervened to promote economic development known as a developmental state. Now, 
South Korea and Taiwan having been the military dictatorships for most of their developmental period, a lot of people have formed this opinion that, yeah, well, maybe you need economic development, but if it requires this repressive state, is it really acceptable? But to those people, I say that actually there are many examples of democratic uh, developmental state, because uh, even during the same period, Japan uh, was a fully functioning democracy. Uh, many European countries, uh, Scandinavia, Austria, France, uh, they used uh, industrial policies that are very similar to the ones that uh, are used in uh, countries like Korea and Taiwan. Yeah? Actually, I think that uh, we need to realize that uh, developmental state can be democratic. Also, this uh, the common belief that developmental states are only concerned with you know, growth and productivity and they don't care about distribution, so it will lead to higher inequality and so on. Once again, even that is not true. I mean, if you look at uh, countries like uh, Japan, Korea, you know, they had actually quite a small welfare state. I mean, in the Korean case, uh, tiny during the developmental period. But it is not as if uh, they didn't care about inequality because uh, these countries control inequality by putting a lot of restrictions on the markets so that uh, they don't actually create the inequality in the first place. Yeah? So there are a lot of uh, the laws uh, protecting small farms, uh, small shops, and countries that uh, want to have a more democratic and egalitarian developmental state uh, can make it sure that these uh, other arrangements are uh, in place so that it can be democratic and it can be more egalitarian. Other countries can also learn from uh, the mistakes as well as successes of uh, countries like uh, South Korea and should uh, strive to build a more democratic and uh, egalitarian uh, developmental state. You've made it your life's work, if you like, to make economics accessible to the majority. And there is a sense in which the economics that runs our everyday life uh, has has been captured by the 1% and is kind of out of reach uh, for everyone else. And how do you think we can change that? And, and why do you think it's so important? Yeah, I sometimes uh, liken the, the status of uh, economics that is mainstream neoclassical economics today uh, to that of uh, Catholic theology in medieval Europe, yeah? basically because it is functioning as a the ideology to justify the status quo, however unjust, undynamic, and wasteful it may be. Yeah? And to make it sure that uh, this is like that, that uh, medieval the Catholic theology, to make it sure that this is not accessible uh, to ordinary people, they use, uh, you know, jargons and math and statistics, uh, you know, some of these things even I don't understand. I mean, they are complete technical overkill. Just to make it difficult for the ordinary people to understand, exactly in the same way that uh, in uh, medieval Europe, the, the Vatican prohibited the translation of the Bible into vernacular languages so that only the 1% could uh, understand it, trained clergy, and a very small number of the rich men who uh, taught Latin. And yeah, the rest uh, will have to basically 
accept what uh, your local priest uh, tell you. And yeah, now, I mean, uh, you have economists uh, who, well, A, are not uh, very interested in the, the ordinary uh, lives of uh, ordinary people, but uh, B, more importantly, think uh, that these uh, ordinary people should not uh, challenge them in terms of basic philosophy and the theoretical framework of uh, what they do and get very upset when ordinary people or uh, dissenting economists ask some fundamental questions about the values behind their economics, uh, the uh, way that they conduct their economics uh, research, and yeah, basically considers themselves as uh, rarefied uh, scientists uh, who should be uh, above criticisms of uh, ignorant people. So yeah, now I've been in the last uh, decade and half, but especially I've been on my personal crusade of uh, what I call mass economic uh, literacy program, you know, trying to bring economics to the ordinary people. Because in a capitalist economy where everything is uh, seen through the lens of uh, economics, uh, the lens of market and so on, without knowing economics, you don't actually know what is going on. Yeah, When you're voting, you don't even know what you're voting for unless you understand at least some uh, basic uh, economics. And yeah, my view is that, uh, you know, I said in my book, uh, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, 95% of the economics is uh, common sense, well, made to look difficult uh, with the use of jargons and math and uh, stats. And uh, even the remaining 5% can be understood by the, anyone with, uh, say, secondary education, if uh, you bother to explain them in plain languages and uh, had uh, some success with that. I mean, millions of people have uh, read my books, uh, but my most of my professional colleagues are not uh, amused uh, by this. I think you've had incredible success, Arjun, and you've certainly had a massive influence on me. I know Naf was saying the same as we were preparing for this podcast. So, so just keep doing what you're doing because it's definitely making a difference. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this uh, podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Arjun. That was an amazing discussion, Max. Really enlightening. But I love what Hajun said about his work and the need for um, mass economic literacy, the importance of bringing economics to ordinary people. Uh, I always think about the fight against inequality. I always worry that there is a resignation and acceptance from the public that inequality is a fact of life, that it's inevitable. And I think people have to realize that there's another way of living. And I think, as Hajun said, Knowing the basics of economics, you know, how our economies work, which we are all part of, will help us um, envision a better future, a more equal world. I think that's very well put enough. I also was just impressed with the way he does do that and, and particularly the way he uses and mobilizes such fantastic analogies. You know, the one uh, right at the end there where he's comparing you know, mainstream economics to the Catholic Church in medieval times. I mean, that was that was just brilliant the way it enlightened uh, the problem we have uh, at the moment with just kind of one recipe of economics. And I also think the discussion about developmental states, the question you asked him about that and uh, 
There is a lot of excitement, a renewed interest in developmental states and industrial policy, and and that is potentially a really a really good thing. And um, I think that's a topic we'll probably come back to in, in subsequent podcasts, don't you think? Absolutely, Max. That's an important topic that we'll have to come back to. Yes, please keep listening, everyone. Leave us a good review and share us with your friends. And um, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode of Equals. Thanks, everyone. Speak soon. Bye.